All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today and letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. We'd love you to support this show. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Your likes and subscription helps us to grow and attract interviews and content. So please retweet and share our posts. Your contributions are appreciated. Welcome to episode 487 of the KISS FAQ podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill. Today, I'm joined by a friend and a collaborator and uh, an, an author, a fellow author, Tim Darling. Welcome. Hi, Julian. Thanks for having me on. This is uh, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, it's great to get you on to the KISS FAQ podcast to do a, a talk about KISS, uh, your b- book. I'm not going to say it's new, but your newly available on Amazon book, Unspooled. Um, before we get into, you know, kind of the, the the subject matter about this, I want you to give people a little bit of a recap of the history of Unspooled, because you originally started that out as a Kickstarter project. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, it was uh, back in 2021, which seems like a long time ago. Um, I had the germ of the idea about the book for a long, long time, um, and uh, but I was encouraged to uh, take it a little bit further. And uh, you know, before going into it too far, I, I have to give so much credit to a longtime friend, Matt Phillips from Go North Design. Uh, because without him, this book wouldn't exist, or if it did, it wouldn't look nearly as good as it does, uh, because he really put a lot of work into the layouts, and anyone who's seen the book knows that just every page just pops, and I can't really take any credit for that. So, um, yeah, we did start it as a Kickstarter campaign. I would say it was a fairly successful one. You know, we got uh, boxes of books showed up, and then it was packaging them up and making them, you know, putting different tiers of uh, uh, orders together, some goodies to go with them, you know, tote bags and things like that. And eventually we sold out of our both hard covers and soft covers. And that, and that was it. And then, uh, you know, but always in the back of my head, I, I, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could make this available long term and, and uh, also honestly make it a lot easier for us that's you know there's no no more traipsing to the the post office with boxes and boxes and getting them weighed and making sure they're packaged well enough and so uh couldn't be any happier with the way that uh you know the the second edition the updated edition has turned out now how did the project work did you write a book first before you started the kickstarter and have it all designed uh by matt before you ever started that kickstarter and what was the purpose of the kickstarter was that to pay for the creation or to pay strictly for the printing which is a pretty heavy cost for a color book we had the book designed the book was designed and and written and you know a lot of guests uh, a lot of guest authors contributed such as yourself and no, we pretty much had it. It was a finished thing uh, by the time that we went to Kickstarter. It was purely to get some capital to, you know, pay for the printing and pay for the, um, you know, offset some of the shipping costs. Was that something that scared you, getting into self-distribution of a, of a book and having, say, a pallet arrive at your home? And it's, now, now I've got to get rid of all these. It's pretty intimidating. Yeah, it was pretty intimidating. I mean, you know, I did have a lot of people in my family that were within driving distance so that I could deliver them myself and, uh, you know, friends of friends. But uh, yeah, we had orders from all over the world. We had orders from the UK. We had orders from, you know, all over the States. We had orders from Australia. And um, it was a little bit intimidating. I mean, once the initial excitement of seeing all those boxes of something that, that you created show up, it's like, I now, now the longer these are here, the more these are costing. Like, I'm not going to get any you know, any return on this. And, you know, in the end, you don't, you know, you don't go rich <laughs> doing this, but, you know, we did all right. Uh, and it was uh, such a passion project that I could, you know, it just turned out so well, but yeah, it, it, it's intimidating at first, but, but uh, Kickstarter is, uh, you know, a pretty good platform for, you know, if you need to get something like that done, but, you know, hindsight being what it is, we probably would have gone the, 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 print-on-demand route from the get-go. But you know what? It's a learning experience. 
Yet, I don't think they were quite up to snuff yet on the quality component um, and also some of the cost limitations and, and design challenges that come into. And that's only from my own experience of why I've always made my books black and white is usually I've seen color as a roadblock, either in terms of cost or tech, you've got a designer. That makes that makes one massive difference in book creation is when you have a partner who's strictly looking at it from a visual perspective and you're handing over copy and they're taking that copy and interpreting it into something visual that's going to be appealing. And I, I want to echo what you said about Matt. Absolutely fantastic design. And more importantly, it comes across as equal in quality on the new Amazon version as it did the original color print. So um, congratulations to Matt on that. Yeah, you know, Matt, I, I always I always say he never ever settles for, oh, that looks okay. You know, he always says, I, I want, you know, I want you to love it. I want you to love how it looks. And and he's got such a critical eye for it. And, and there's times it's like, Matt, you've shown me five different variants. They all look good to me. I don't know. But usually, you know, uh, when the finished product comes out, I'll go, yeah, you know, we, I really, you know, that really was the right decision to make it look like this. But yeah, the Amazon, that was a concern. And, and, and we had talked to you about that um, based on, based on how um, Mask Hysteria turned out. We're very, very pleasantly surprised with the color quality. You know, the, the, the white doesn't, the white text doesn't uh, disappear into the red. And like, it came out really, really well. Yeah, the, the bleeds are fantastic. The clarity and the separation is great. And they're not using, you know, a, a super high tech, you know, um, print process for the production of their books. Um, it, it really does, doesn't look like what the, the technology is, which is so impressive. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced as a Kickstarter? Were there any or were you so well prepared when you went into that and you you cut loose on that. Did it go as smoothly as you expected or were there any gotchus or learning bumps along the road? I don't really, I can't really recall any, any big snags there, but I do have to mention to, to folks watching, Julian was a big help um, in, uh, in giving Matt some pointers on how to transfer the files to the Amazon format because Matt had tried different times and just kept running into roadblock after roadblock. And it was just a few formatting issues Man, once that happened, that made all the difference. So, but as far as the Kickstarter, I'm sure there were things that that came up at the time. But no, I just remember, you know, the excitement of of um, going back to check the Kickstarter page and watching the orders, you know, grow. Um, and, and you know, I knew that going into this, you know, we'll, we'll get to what the book's about. But I knew that it was a very niche. Uh, a very niche area that I was talking about. I, I joked that it's niche within niche. So I knew that there would be a limited audience, but I did not, but I also knew that we had something very cool that um, if we marketed correctly, could appeal to people that just like a good music book, um, you know, and, and it, it's, it's partially a reference book. It's partially, you know, there's a little bit of autobiographical content about me in there. And, the, but there's just, there's a lot of cool visuals and, Basically, I think most most people will tell you that if they've ever gone into, you know, done a book themselves, they would have just as soon found a book in the marketplace about the topic they want to talk about and just bought it. But I could not find one and I still can't find one. So I perceived the deficit. So I, let's fill the deficit. And that somewhat answers what was going to be the question of why eight tracks. But in terms of your, your personal story, where do eight tracks fit in and come into your life? And how have they become something that was uh, worthy of your time in doing a book? I mean, a full-fledged book is a hell of a commitment, whether it's eight tracks or any other topic. But you obviously had enough of a reason and motivation to do it. Where does that come from? Oh, the scary skull jelly in my head julian um it's a it's a strange topic to write a book about but i'm, I'm happy to talk about it um you know I, i'm old enough to remember when eight tracks were popular you know i was born in 74 so i, I remember uh having um you know i was always fascinated by music and i was always fascinated by formats you know seeing uh seeing artwork and the big 12 by 12 canvas that is vinyl or seeing it a little tiny cassette or seeing it on an eight track, you know, when I was really little seeing the same picture, you know, um, for some reason that always just intrigued me. 
But I, I remember, you know, cousins of mine having things like uh, Blondie, the Cars, um, you know, uh, artists like that on on a track, and and you know, putting them in and out of the machine, and uh, remembering a lot of them breaking down and getting tangled up and having to try and respool them or rescue them from the player and um but uh you know that's all that that's that's where it started but i you know there was no thing you know somebody should write a book about this but in the late 80s actually 1990 to be exact i was you know i my music collection was growing and i was buying primarily cassettes at this point i had a little bit of vinyl but i came across uh, a flea market that was selling tables upon tables of eight tracks because you know in it, by the late 80s and the early 90s there were there was no resale value in eight tracks there were 10 cents I mean, so please take just, them away you know uh stores would be selling them at just cut rate prices right they just couldn't there was no value in them you know i compare it to like uh vhs tapes now you know you just see piles of them everywhere right and I, and I wonder if there's ever going to come a time when people will be like, oh, man, I wish I'd have kept my such and such, you know, VHS. But uh, it, was, it was very much there was no value in them. But I, I, I came across a copy of Journey's Escape, which I was a big fan, always been a big fan. And it was a dollar. So more of the novelty of it, really, seeing an album I liked on a track form. Um, so I bought it. And for a while, that was the only one I had. But, but what really took root and what really made me want to do this is sometime in the mid-90s, I want to say 95 or 96, um, I started to have the thought of, um, you know, trying to collect these things. And, you know, rock bands, or classic rock bands, especially harder rock bands, you just didn't see them on 8-track, even though you knew they existed, they had to have existed, being on major labels and, you know, you just knew that they were out there, but usually you'd find old country eight tracks or disco or various artists or easy listening. You know, you'd find plenty of, you know, Engelbert Humperdinck and, and you know, uh, so, but what really did it, uh, was I discovered a website called eight track heaven.com, which you can go on now and look at an archive version of it. It's not active anymore, but there is an archive version of it. And, it was a really handy site for information about, you know, how they worked. And, but, but there was one section that, that changed it all. And there was a section called uh, the eighties only club or the eighties only record club, only eight tracks, RCOs. I use the term RCOs a lot. And this is when I discovered that eight tracks did not disappear completely as early as I would have thought, because if someone would have asked me back then, so when did they stop making eight tracks? Then I would say, well, I'm not really sure, but I would have to think sometime around 1981, 1982. That's when I, my memories of like people in my family, um, most people just started buying cassettes. I just remember seeing cassettes, you know, when I'd visit aunts and uncles and stuff where they'd have the eight track player out. Now, now they've got, if they don't have a, a tape deck or, or a, a record player, uh, then they'd have one of those eight track adapters that you'd set the right. cassette down in and play your cassette through the eight track player, which I always thought was genius. So I made sure to include a photo of one of those. So I would have thought that by the early eighties, they were no more. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people think of them as a seventies medium, and that's definitely when they, had their peak of popularity was was the 70s because i think in the 70s the quality of an eight track tape was much higher than that of a cassette i think that, right. that, that once cassettes got to a point where they were of a higher quality um they kind of overtook also you know there were lots of issues with the format it's a strange format um the way that they were put together you know a lot of times the songs were out of order they'd have to break songs up between programs there were four programs as opposed to two sides uh, you know four stereo programs four times two eight that's why they're called eight tracks and uh you know there were just a lot of things that, that were going against the format but i found out that columbia house rca music service those you know the record clubs continued to make eight track tapes available through most of the 1980s and there were some pictures of some examples and, and 
the first one that I noticed was George Harrison's Cloud Nine, which came out in 1987. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wait a minute, an album that came out in 1987 was made on a track? This, what? And then I saw David Lee Roth eat him and smile. And I was like, whoa, like, and, and this was mind blowing for me. I just, it, it opened up this whole world. I realized then that there was a whole, like, hidden underground subsection that I knew nothing about. I had previously known nothing about. This also meant that the, the amount of, you know, tapes that I would be looking for to collect from, from artists that I liked just increased by how much I wasn't sure. It didn't seem like there were a lot of harder rock bands, but there were a few. And it just it just blew my mind that that all the way up until 1988, you could still get certain titles on 8-track. Now, this is Columbia House uh, slash R uh, and also RCA Music Service, which later became BMG's Music Service. This is in the US. Uh, from, from all of my research, it seems like Columbia House in Canada stopped in 1984. But even then, that's past the, you know, most people would have no idea that albums in 1984 were being made on 8-track because unless you were a member of the record clubs, you didn't see them. And I didn't know anybody in my family that was that was mem a member of Columbia House or, you know, any other record club. So th this really opened up uh, a new world of uh, collecting. And then, of course, with the advent of eBay, every once in a while you'd see them. Now, they're crazy expensive, right? Depending on the popularity of the titles. So, you know, if to bring it into the Kiss world a little bit, in case anybody's wondering, uh, Animal Eyes is the last known Kiss album to be produced on 8-track. And even that in of itself seems like Animal Eyes on 8-track? Yes. Go on Discogs, you will see it. Go on And then, the and then see the list. price that it goes for. Yeah, the, yeah. So, um, oddly enough, Lick It Up seems to be the more costly one. Animal Eyes seems to come up more often. I'm not sure why that is. But, um, you know, just to give you that example. But, I mean, if... And I don't know what the criteria was for when they actually decided to stop. Like, I don't I don't know if it was a decision by band or management to say, no, we don't want, you know, yes, we'll allow our albums to be available through the record clubs, which my understanding is they made next to nothing. Uh, it yeah, was a real, you record, know. Record club royalty rates were notoriously rubbish. Yes, but record clubs were also notoriously ripped off. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I've never done this, but I, I do know, um, I know a lot of people that used to be able to do this. You'd get the introductory offer, the 11, 12, you know, albums for a penny or whatever, and they'd get it sent general delivery. And that would be the end of that. They've got their 12 CDs. A lot of times they take them to the pawn shop and get two bucks a CD and they just made, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was a, uh, I've called it, the, and then, you know, and then there's the selection of the month card you'd get, you know, the negative billing option where if you didn't send back uh, the, the card, you'd end up with probably an album you didn't want or one you've already had for six months. Because that was the other thing about the record clubs. They were, they would take a long, long time before they would get certain titles in. And then some titles, they just wouldn't get in because there were certain bands, I think, that just wouldn't allow, they wouldn't allow their albums through it. But the, but the fact that a lot did, I was really shocked at the, the titles that, that uh, you know, that did. And I, I always wish that there was somewhere, some sort of reference where I could find out which ones were actually made. Uh, and, and, and really that's, that was my initial goal for this book, but what really changed that around for the better was early 2021. You know, I have to say that the, 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 one of the unexpected, um, boosts that came from the quarantine thing is that, you know, getting to use, uh, Zoom and StreamYard as we do, I've, you know, I've met a lot of people, yourself included, and, you know, doing a channel i just my people that i can talk to just expanded and um i happened to i i reached out because we'd done a, a mutual show on on rush fans um with martin popoff who i've been right. a long time fan of, of martin's books right and so i thought you know what while this is still fresh in his mind i'm going to message him to see if he wants to come on my show 
And specifically, I asked him the very question, what does he remember about 8-tracks in the 80s? And, uh, you know, he generously agreed to come on. We've done a lot of shows together, but uh, he had no he had no concept that they he would have thought late 70s they would have phased them out. So he was really shocked to find this out. And he said, someone should do a book on this. And so here I thought, if, if Martin Popoff thinks there's a book idea here. <laughs> Martin of all people. Yeah. And he's not going to do it. Maybe there's a book here. So, and then I went to Matt. I said, you know, and I basically said, what do you, you know, what do you think? Uh, and uh, we talked about it and he was very generous with, very, very generous with his, with his expertise and his knowledge. I mean, you know, um, it's one thing to, to ask a buddy to help you, you know, move something, you know, this was a big ask, but man, did he ever step up to the plate and over months, like it was, that was January of 2021 when I talked to Martin. So I think it was September or October when we finally went live on Kickstarter. It was a long process, but um, I got my, my you know, picture taking skills up to speed because I took a lot of pictures of my own stuff uh, on my porch, uh, trying to get the lighting just right. And I'd send them to Matt and he'd say, almost there not quite tilted a little bit this way so you know by the end i i got to i got to know i would take two or three you know shots and go i think he's gonna like this third one and he like you know that so yeah uh it was a long process coming to that but that's i i i really was just looking to have like a list a year by year list through the 1980s of what titles are confirmed known to exist but then Martin suggested that I have some collecting stories in there too. And that really was the turning point because he took it from, it would have been a very, it would have served the purpose, but it turned into something that anyone who's got nostalgia for the seventies and eighties, especially the eighties, because it really does go through the eighties of music collecting can enjoy. You know, you, you've, you don't have to know a single thing about eight track tapes. Uh, you know, if you're into classic rock, there's something in this book to enjoy. And it really became this hybrid thing, which the only thing about it is it makes it very difficult to explain to someone in a hurry when they say, what's your book about? Uh, but, you know, that's why I, I like to send them to the, the, the Amazon link now, which is great. It's like, here you go. You can look through it. Um, yeah, that's that's how it all came. That's that's how it all came about. And and this this new edition that's on Amazon is basically the same thing, except um, as these things go, I don't know if there'll ever be a definitive list on on what albums are confirmed. I don't think that's I don't think that's a technical possibility to have a definitive list no. because there's always going to be some obscure issue. I mean, we've talked uh, when we when we talked Aerosmith, we talked about the um, Done with Mirrors eight track. Yeah. I've still not found one of those. No, um, and and you just never know what's going to pop up from the Kiss realm. I mean, most Kiss people who come into the collecting era know about those two Columbia House ones yes. for Lick It Up and um, and Animalize, but they don't yeah. necessarily know about the other end of the spectrum, which are the Ampex ones from '74, '75, which are the original. Um, they're in house. So they're for Casablanca. They are official releases, but they're manufactured by a third-party company uh, who also made their cassette tapes at the time. And one of the things that I'm interested in, and it's way outside the scope of your book, but I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever started keeping track of some of the alternative mixes that are on eight tracks um, in the Kiss realm of to make those albums fit on those four segments, you mentioned earlier that a lot of voodoo was often done with moving songs around yeah. to splitting songs into part one, part two. Um, but they also did things like cut and paste. They would extend outros to make it fit to the track length and yeah. add in an extra chorus in some cases. I mean, ha do you have a, a tape player, uh, an eight track player? And do you go into that level of insanity or is that just uh, something that I would do? I used to. I used to have a little um, uh, to answer your question. No, I, I don't chronicle that. I know that, for example, you know, if you're a diehard Pink Floyd fan, there are I think it's animals that contains so many seconds of a David Gilmore guitar solo that's only in that format for that very reason to to make it. Um, but no, uh, I used to have a little portable player, but it ate up too many tapes of mine. And I don't have 
the patience nor the inclination to work on these things because there are people who who work on these and these things require so much maintenance to keep them playing and and keep the players in good shape i admire that but i don't have that level of commitment i want to buy the tapes put them up on my wall and listen to the cd and just look at the ones that i've got and go huh um that's good enough for me um but no i, I know that there you know there are probably all sorts of variants because you know people may or may not know even if they know a little bit about eight tracks you could not rewind eight tracks you could only fast forward them and of the four programs the labels tried to keep them approximately the same length so there weren't big gaps of space of, of silence uh, between the programs and you know if you had a, a minute and a half gap of silence between say program one and program two you might think well just press on to the next program but the problem is it didn't advance to the beginning of the next program it advanced to where you were at on that first program if you're if you're uh nine and a half minutes in on program one that's where it's going to end up when you hit the program change to program two so you're going to lose all those songs too it's a really really weird uh medium and sometimes it results in the strangest of track listings uh, track listings that don't make any sense whatsoever yeah, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, things like the, the those two Kiss 8 tracks can be so expensive when they do come on the market because you've got your 8-track collectors, you've got your RCO collectors, then you've got your Kiss collectors, which is what your chapter in, in my book is about because we are crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and I found that, that hard rock and metal particularly, those are the 8-tracks that command the ridiculously expensive prices. Uh, Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil, that is a highly Ugh. sought after. Interest. I'm looking for Too Fast for Love. I've seen one, and I'm not too sure whether it's legit. I don't think it's legit, Julian. I don't think that was ever... I, I don't know, because Columbia House in Canada did do Too Fast on early on. So, and of course, in Canada, Too Fast for Love originally came out with the leather mix. With the leather mix so so what I'm thinking is... It's possible. Did... No, because I, I can't say... That's the thing. I can't say for sure, but I do know for sure that both Columbia House and RCA, RCA Music Service did shout at the devil because they look very, very different. Um, that I've seen that on eBay for 600 plus. You know, uh, they're not uh, RCO tapes, but the first three Iron Maiden albums... The U.S. Capital version; those go for ridiculous amounts of money. Um, you know, uh, like you said, done with mirrors. That is so. There doesn't seem to be a Columbia House variant of it. Just the RCA Music Service one. I'd love to get my hands on one of those. That's the last known Aerosmith eight track. But that also begs the question: Why is it the last known one? And there's a section in my book where I talk about some what ifs. And Kiss and Aerosmith are both in there. Based so what are on, what are your what are your what ifs that kind of come into play? Is it down to band? Is it down to record label? Is it down to sales volume, or is there some other parameter that's coming into the mix? Right. Well, it's based on a, a combination of things, but there is a chapter in my book where I talk about albums that could potentially exist on eight track, and a lot of times it's based on um, their peers, bands that are similar, bands that are on the same label that did have albums that came out in that later period you know uh for example kiss it's an easy example for kiss because animalize is the last known one but i said well what about asylum um because in 1985 you had done with mirrors you know you had aerosmith you had autograph that's the stuff you had right. Dawkin under lock and key, which is another highly sought after one. Like there's like been one picture of that circulate on the internet for 30 years. And, and it's, it's like one of the most highly sought after ones. But Dawkin 8-track for crying out loud. Um, so um, but the example that I use with Kiss is um, Power Windows by Rush, because that's the last Rush 8-track uh, to, known to exist on 8-track. That came out in the fall of 1985 as did asylum both of those acts were on mercury records in the states you know sound nothing alike but they got marketed together a lot was so rush's that, rco or was it still beige uh polygram media oh no it was a it was a it's a it's a rca rca music service version okay doesn't seem to be a columbia house one 
But it makes me wonder, you know, if Mercury went through the trouble of making it for an album like Power Windows, um, at this point, Kiss were coming off a platinum album. You know, they were kind of gaining some steam. Why wouldn't they have put Asylum out? It's very possible that, you know, it wouldn't, I can't say it didn't happen. I've got no evidence of it. And I have to have evidence of it before I have it in my year-end lists. This is purely speculative. And Aerosmith is the other one. Um, I thought, why, why don't Classics Live and Classics Live 2 exist? And the reason for that is it's Columbia House was a division of CBS Records. It would have been very, very easy for, for, the, for CBS to pop those out and they might sell a few. You know, when someone has, you know, they've got two left on their on their obligation and they're through with Columbia House. Oh, I'll get these two Aerosmith ones. Um, so there's little things like that that come along that you think, well, yeah, well, why does this one exist and this one doesn't? And every once in a while you get to a point where you'll notice that there are skips in a catalog wherein a track, a track. Here's one that doesn't have an a track. The one after it does rat out of the cellar. Great example. Because, believe it or not, the RAT EP and Invasion of Your Privacy are confirmed to exist on 8-Track. But their biggest selling album, right in the middle, out of the cellar, doesn't seem to. Or at least it hasn't surfaced yet. It just, these are, these are, the, these are the, the factors that have gone into compiling these lists because I can't go on, well, I think I remember seeing it. I need myself to see a legitimate picture of it or at least to see it listed in an old ad where they would list, you know, the titles that are available. Um, one that um, one that evaded me for a long time until someone generously sent me a photo of it uh, because they found it in a lot. Like they, they bought a lot of 40 just to get the one was the first album by Coney Hatch. Great Canadian band. Not enough people know about. But their first album um, was um, it was on mercury records in the states but like rush it was on anthem records in canada and i found an old columbia house um insert something that would have been inside like a reader's digest back in 1982 and titles that weren't available on eight track had an asterisk next to them titles that didn't have an asterisk were and coney hatch's debut album was one of them so i thought okay that's pretty that's a pretty good indication that it exists but until I found a picture of it, uh, I didn't put it in the list in the first edition under 1982. Now it's in the second list because I have seen a picture of it. It's so obscure, as a matter of fact, that I, I had um, Andy Curran from Coney Hatch on Tim's Vinyl Confessions. He had no idea that he, there, you know, music he played on was available on 8-track. So I expect one of these days there'll be a bidding war on eBay between Andy and myself. <laughs> um, but... Uh, if you know, one comes up and hasn't gone to the landfall, I think one of the things that you that kind of jumps into my mind on this is record labels. You know, Rat was Atlantic. Um, Geffen, of course, was a Warner company for Aerosmith. Polygram was, well, Polygram. And Polygram, I seem to remember reading an article in Billboard about them in 1984 that they were going all in with cassettes. That that was um, going to be their big format push for the 1980s as sales of vinyl decreased. So that is kind of what I've always figured from that point with Kiss is because they'd made the massive transition to uh, cassette tapes in 1984. They'd reissued the catalog in 1985 on cassette specifically. Right. Um, with much less volume of vinyl available at that time, that that is where all the focus was. Uh, I'd have to dig it up, but I, I think you can find it in one of the Billboard archives that PDI yeah. Polygram is uh, going all in with cassettes as their their primary format. That makes sense because I mean cassettes were I mean everywhere. Everybody I knew of all ages. That's we bought cassettes. They were portable, you know. Um, but it just you know it, it again it that that leads to this. Um, they're out of these eight tracks that existed from say 83 onward, they're out of time. It doesn't make sense for these albums to exist in this, this arcane format, but they do. And in just like most things, I thought, cause most things are a Google search away, but this isn't. No. Um, you'll find everything, but, 
So I really wanted something that was on paper in fist, you know, and that you could say, okay, these ones are at least known to exist. Now, in the second edition, there were probably about two dozen titles that have been added, ones that I discovered after the fact that that did indeed exist. I saw a picture of, and there were a couple that were actually removed because um, another big source of information for me is a, is a Facebook page that I'm a member of called 8-Track Fixation, um, where you know a lot of very knowledgeable people, they, they know there are COs, and there were a couple listed. There was um, actually one is, uh, one is KISS-oriented, uh, related, um, but one, one was Alan Parsons' project, Eye in the Sky, and the other one was 707 Megaforce with Todd Howarth. Todd Howarth, um, of course. Yep. And um, I had those down in the 1982 year-end list as RCOs, but um, I, I was told, and with pictures to prove it, these are not RCOs, there are retail editions of both of these, so I took those out. Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you, you, you talk about here. And the other, the other issue, as I mentioned with the Coney Hatch, until I saw a picture of that, I didn't want to put it in the year-end list because I often wonder, um, were titles offered or listed in the catalog or the inserts as available on 8-Track, but never manufactured? Uh, what was the, um, you know, the pressings of some of these would have to have been so small, even for the biggest of sellers. You know, if you break down an album, let's say Animalize, it's a million selling album in the U.S., and I think it went... I think it sold a million copies within its life. It wasn't like it was certified years down the road, anything else. I think it sold a million copies within a year. You know, probably at least half of those were cassettes. Probably the, the big majority of that was on cassette. Some vinyl, maybe some CDs, because Polygram was a bit of a leader with CDs because of, you know, Phillips and all that. But how many on 8-track? And, and, would they even count those as sales? So how many of them would they make? 50, 100? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But it just, it boggles the mind. And it just was more, I wanted to get down what I did know, you know? Right. So in terms of KISS, Creatures of the Night is the last um, in-house. retail, the last retail one. And it's really, really rare too. You never see it. It's tough, and I mean, I talked to you when when we spoke last about eight tracks. I I said how I'd been on the hunt for a music from the elder one because I wanted to, you know, do a transfer of the eight track to, you know, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I know yeah. people out there are like what? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the last one I have. I don't. I've 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 never seen creatures for sale. Never mind. So it's not a matter of like, well, how much would it cost? It's not just that. It's like it's can't you, you know the people. It is that literally have them, supply and demand at this yeah, point. The that people that have them are holding on to them. Now I got to say, I'm kicking myself for not doing a buy it now on eBay on an animalize. I think it was 250, 250 US. And when I think about it now, I wish I'd have pulled the trigger. That's a, that's a good price now. It's not bad, and I wish I'd have pulled the trigger because you know what? I said, geez, I just spent. You know, but I would have had it. At least I would have had that end one. Um, and I hate bidding. So a buy it now, yeah, I really should have just worry about it later, you know. Uh, the um, Yeah, but why, why would you want to do Do you have Lick It Up? You just, I think you no, just said that that's no, the last one. The, you elder, had. Do the you, Elder is the very last see, one. See, I can't handle gaps. If I had the Animal Eyes and the Elder and not creatures and lick it up and very little opportunity to get a lick it up that would drive me bonkers well it, it bonkers. would certainly fire it would certainly fire me up to keep looking you know what i mean but it would be hard to pass well i did pass it up but it, you know it's hard because it's like ah because then you could you know you could come across uh the ones you know the, the two in between and then you still don't have animalized like i could have had that one it's a weird, you know, and then most people, most rational people, Julian, would go, why do you guys even care? But why do people collect anything? Everybody, you know, a lot of people collect something. So that's the other thing about this book is that even if you don't collect eight tracks, if you collect anything, you'll find there are similarities and in, in the thing, in whatever drives you to be obsessed with collecting certain things, you'll find yourself in there just looking for whatever it is, right? 
And creatures is in an odd one too because there don't there doesn't seem to be any. Um, it wouldn't be an RCO because it did come out as a Casablanca, like a well, like a you know, like a beige polygram one, like right. That. But but um, a lot of the seventies tapes came out as Casablanca eight tracks, and you cannot find them. All you can find are the bloody Columbia House uh, issues yeah. with the wrong the, color media. But there doesn't seem to be any um, any record club issues of creatures of the night um you know it wouldn't you know i put asylum in as an example of a what if but the non-makeup creatures might have been more likely because that was earlier in 1985 never even heard tell of one of those existing i gotta tell you if if uh if i came across a copy of the non-makeup cover as an rco yeah i'd still like to have the makeup cover but i'd have something to fill the spot you know what i mean uh, but there doesn't seem to be. It, it just seemed like they stopped cold in 1984, where other bands of their vintage uh, kept going with, with the albums that were available. Also, it should be mentioned that, yeah, Kiss were on, you know, Polygram, Casablanca, later Polygram, you know, and then Aerosmith on Geffen, Warner, Electra, Atlantic. Those were like the neutral labels. So you can find copies of those as RCOs, both Columbia House and with RCA. But if you were an artist on CBS Records, for example, there weren't any RCA music service carts of your albums. So, you know, by the same token, if you were an RCA artist, you didn't find your albums on Columbia House. At least that seems to be where the cutoff was. It was only like the, the, the neutral labels that licensed their albums to both. You know, I really wish that I could have talked to someone who worked for Columbia House in the 80s. I would love to, to get the, the, the behind the scenes on, you know, when someone sends in an order, walk me through that process. You know, is it something where somebody, you know, in 1987 uh, is processing the incoming orders and they go, oh, somebody somebody wants uh, Michael Jackson bad on 8-track. That's, that's 50 now. I guess we got to run them off. Is that the kind of process that they went through? It couldn't be know. because... I've got mastering documentation for eight tracks. They had to be specially mastered. Yes. Yeah. In in order to do the format, every format had to have its own master. You you don't have one universal master. Yeah, you that, couldn't use oh, the we're, we're we're not we're running that into an eight track today. It doesn't work that way. Everything no. has to be specifically prepared, and ever, everything that's prepared has a cost associated with it. Yeah. So the yeah that's the other thing, and I have to think that's why they finally curtailed it in 1988 because. Starting in 1986, CDs were available uh, through Columbia House. I've got a reprint of an ad that says, compact discs now available. So that meant there was a window between 1986 and 1988 that you had four formats um, for an album that you would have wanted, and you had to indicate which one it was you wanted. Now, there's an article in there about the only box set that's known to exist in all four of those formats. So I have to think the costs associated with it were like, okay, enough's enough. Let's we're done with the eight tracks and three years later or so they were done with vinyl too yeah who distributed dark horse for cloud nine because so that that's a warner label i i mean i can somewhat understand that lingering that late because of george's demographic but right. was steel wheels available as an eight track by 89 there, there aren't any the only time the only the only eight tracks that you saw after 88 uh, were like uh the you know uh, uh tv commercials time life presents uh, sessions presents secret love you know that might be available <laughs> on eight but other than that no there weren't any albums that i know of that came out november 15th 1988 uh seems to be the cutoff and there are two albums that came out i talk about them in the book one i have one i do not i finally have one of them journey's greatest hits Wow. November 5th, 1988 on 8-Track, down to this small print and, you know, just the stickers crooked, you know, just slap it on there. But when I first bought Escape in 1990, I would have had no idea that just two years previous, here's the greatest hits, which is like I said, I listen to all the time, would have come out on 8-Track. I would have had no idea. So, like, this blows my mind. There's no music on this from 1988, but still. This is when it was released. Um, I do find that there are certain trends. Uh, the lists, 84, 85 seem to be the peak, and then they drastically drop off the number of known titles. 
If you were a fan of country music in the 80s and you had an eight-track player, you were well served. Because in 1988, it's mostly country artists or superstars, you know, like absolute superstars that tended to have their albums available on eight-track longer than most. Most, uh, you know, harder rock metal bands, 85, 86 seemed to be the cutoff for a lot of them. By the time 87 rolled around, you know, you weren't seeing, you know, uh, Dawkins or Def Leppard or Kiss. or. Um, but again, I say that the fact that they made a truck next to November of 1988, to me, that means anything's a possibility if it was on a major label. But until I see it, it won't be in a book. Let's wrap this with, um, let's see. I did get some show and tell out. You would ask me about certain bands. Yep. So, uh, so you mentioned Aerosmith. Well, okay, yeah. so I'm done with mirrors. Notice what I have is this, which is retail. That, that I actually, I saw one of those this week. Um, I went down to Amoeba in San Francisco to, just to see what I could see in the eight track collection there. And they had no hard rock. I think they had uh, lots of Buddy Miles and Hugh Masekela. Yes. And country. And the crazy thing about these, I don't know about this one in particular, Julian, but if you buy this and you have a Discogs account, you can scan that barcode and it works. I did that with um, April Wine, Nature of the Beast on Capitol. It had the, the Capitol once had the barcode on the side. I scanned it, and Discogs came up, 8-track edition, Nature of the Beast Capital Records. I thought, wow, they were ahead of their time <laughs> on those barcodes. So I don't. So I, I classify, you know, in levels of completeness in my collection. There's, re, there's three different distinctions. There's retail, which is all the known retail ones. There's retail, well, there's complete, which is all the retails, all the RCO. And then there's retail uh, complete plus which means that I don't have all the RCOs, but I got something that's extra. And in the case of Aerosmith, I've got all of them from the first album through Rock and Hard Place, and I managed to find this. So, cheap trick. Uh, I'm only missing one. I'm missing Next Position, Please, which is an RCO, but I do have this one. It's a little beat up. This is a retail one. And, and when you see the RCOs, they look vastly different. And then as Cheap Trick fans know, there's this too, from 2009. And there's actually a really <laughs> nice about this in the book um, with someone that was partially responsible for making this happen. So I already showed you the Elder, much to Julian's chagrin. The other rare kiss one I have is... Peter? Oh, you... It, these. That the, that's the U.S. or the Canadian? That's the U.S. one. The Canadian one looks way different. I mean, yeah... It would be nice to have them in the box where it's like this, you know, but. Um, and finally, one of the one of the rarest ones, this is one of the. Um, it's, it's one of the last we're getting into the last few months of retail ones. With Rush Signal. So, again, this would have come out, you know, within a month or so around uh, Creatures of the Night coming out. So this is what the format would look like. I always loved that PDI beige. Me too. They made the cassettes like that too. Yeah, I like it too. But one of the rare state tracks I own is uh, the only Canadian one I have past um, 81. I paid a bit of a glorious money. album. Glorious yeah. album. Um, and for many minutes, so this is a Canadian one on Anthem distributed by Columbia House. And uh, yeah, it's in really good shape. It's really smooth. And until about five years ago, I would have said, well, now I've got all the Rush 8 tracks because it was only five years ago that I found out our windows existed. And that threw everything out of the water. As a matter of fact, um, a lot of people thought the last known retail track to be released was, I think, Prince 1999, which came out in October of 1982. But it has since been discovered that Pyromania exists as a retail um, it does. A track. And again, it looks like one of these if you get it in the state. Um, and that came out in January 83. So that's so 83, there's probably, I think I wrote down in the book, there's like six known retail albums, but it was pretty much over. Um, so yeah, that, but there's more to it than that. You know, there's stories about collecting and 
it goes through year by year, starting in 1981, going through 1988, about, um, you know, there's a little bit about me, what I was doing, because I was just a kid. Uh, and I think this, there's a personal touch that I tried to put into this book. And at the end of each year, there's that list of known RCOs to exist. So that's the reference part of it. There's a lot of cool um, uh, stories in here from from other people that have you know generously donated their time. Uh, you donated a great chapter on kiss collecting i still laugh when you talk about i think his name was tom who was always one step ahead of you <laughs> with the kiss collectibles um and and i relate to that so i tried to, to get some of that in there i've got a great article that somebody um wrote up uh as a comment on one of my youtube videos about how a track actually worked uh, i've got bill flanagan who's a teacher that talks about playing them in his classroom and his students becoming interested in them you know, there's great stuff in here. You need not know nothing about eight track tapes or care. But if you grew up in the 70s and 80s and you have that music nostalgia and you love listening to that old stuff um, and you still collect stuff today, there's a lot to love in this book. Just and just the fact that it's just gorgeously laid out and, uh, you know, it uh, looks good on the shelf. Yep. Well, that, that that's just before I wrap up, um, Tom. I don't know whether we had uh, talked the last time about Tom, but he showed up on every single KISS website during the winter. There was a KISS fan in upstate New York who was snowblowing his sidewalk with uh, a Gene Simmons mask on. And it turned out that that was Tom. And I messaged him. I said, hey, are you such and such? He says, yeah. I said, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Bane of your existence. <laughs> yep. So he's still alive and well. Tim, I want to take the, you know, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Our audio is crapping out. So let's end there. Unspooled, available. Let's see. I can get this. Oh, let's uh, actually get the right one. Get the Amazon one. Unspooled, available on Amazon now. Plenty of Kiss content and plenty of 8 track content and cool stories. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Thank you for spending time listening to the KISS FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.